0: Hi, it's Nachum Siegel with uh, this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to check out some of the recent conversations we've had on JM and the AM. On Yom HaShawah, Dr. Israel Singer joined us to discuss the Holocaust, especially in terms of remembering the Holocaust in the context of what's happening today in 2021. Dr. Israel Singer, JM Rewind here at the Nachum Siegel Network. JM and the AM. Thursday morning broadcast, we asked our friends from Turo College, We said because we've been uh, featuring a whole bunch of people from Turo College recently, as you know, we said who would be appropriate to bring on on Yomar Shoa to discuss a variety of topics about this important day, and boy did they come up with the perfect guest for us, and I want to thank them. Uh, Dr. Israel Singer, Vice President of International Affairs at Turo, Professor of Contemporary Jury at Lander, and the Graduate School of uh, Jewish Studies. Uh, Dr. Singer was named Secretary General of the World Jewish Congress in 1985, served there for two decades. He's now Honorary President of the International Jewish Committee for Interreligious Consultations. In 2002, he received the Jerusalem Prize for Jewish Leadership from the Nation of Israel for his work in the restoration of Jewish property and other restitution efforts, and he's taught political science and political theories in a variety of institutions, including, of course, at Turo College here in uh, New York. Uh, Dr. Israel Singer, an honor to welcome you to JM and the AM on this Yom HaShoah.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be up early to speak to you. I uh, like hearing your voice, uh, Mm. even uh, when it's not early.
0: I appreciate that very much. We're going to get into a couple of issues regarding what this day is all about, just practically speaking so people understand and know Turo's commitment to both Jewish history and, of course, modern Jewish history in relationship to the uh, topic of the Shoah. I'd have to assume, and I'd ask you for a comment, uh, that the Jewish history department and uh, the one that deals specifically with Holocaust programs at Turo uh, likely is rich with uh, many courses and a variety of courses of studies and professors who can address a lot of these issues and educate those from our community and from other communities uh, about uh, the Shoah and modern Jewish history. Can you just give us a, a, a quick overview about what Turo makes available to its students?
1: Very quick summary. Uh, we, we have a PhD program in Jewish history which uh, specializes in uh, many, many fields, but one of them, of course, is one that Dr. Lander, the founder of the school, and uh, his successor, Dr. Kadish, have been especially committed to, and that is the uh, study of the Holocaust and uh, the study of uh, human rights Uh, and the violations of uh, the genocide agreement. Uh, I I can tell you that we have a special uh, program in Berlin, uh, which we teach uh, as part of the denazification program in Germany. Uh, People in Europe and the entire European Union uh, about the Holocaust and how to protect people from uh, repetition of such violence. Uh, But more importantly, uh, we... uh, Every year, bring a group of young people, I I had that program myself, uh, to uh, uh, Europe to visit not just uh, concentration camps, uh, but as well uh, places in which uh, the the human species became so low uh, that it was not even predicted uh, in any of the uh, early historical documents Uh, nothing like the holocaust ever happened before and uh, we try to teach young people from the united states from turo college and others who uh, join us uh, every summer uh hopefully we might have part of this program this summer as well last summer it was virtual uh, and we teach them about the holocaust they have been participants in the room where uh, the war criminals were tried uh, in Nuremberg, they were participants in the places in which Hitler uh, created the mass psychosis, which caused the, uh, the rallies to get millions of people to become participants in uh, violence that had never been known before without any cause, uh, just racism and uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, this is one of the unique programs It should be followed by others. It's a summer abroad program. And uh, it's a four-credit program for undergraduate and graduate students. Everybody gets to write a paper from their perspective as to what they saw and what they learned.
0: Dr. Israel Singer with us. Uh, Information about all this at Turo College, of course, Turo.edu. Turo.edu, as you hear on this Yomar Shoah, they are committed uh, to not just a, a, a rich Jewish history department, but one that concentrates tremendously on many different aspects, facets, and angles of the Holocaust Uh, as it relates to our community and beyond. Um, Today is Yom HaShoah, of course, and uh, based on your experience uh, with all the different positions you've held and what you've seen over the last many, many decades, um, it, it would be interesting to hear your perspective about what's going on in 2021 as we look back today and get everyone in the proper mood for what happened back in World War II. How relevant... Are the events of World War II to the events that we, as a much freer people, are going through in the United States and other parts of the world today?
1: To make any comparison uh, between uh, events that we're going through today and what happened during the Holocaust is uh, absolutely an exaggeration. Uh, That was a unique event in history. Uh, It should be taught as such. It was the particular downgrading of the human species to a degree uh, that uh, seems not to have happened before, and we have uh, studies in which we do comparative analyses of various kinds of
2: misbehavior
1: throughout history. But uh, to discuss the one point which is comparative in our society today to that period, that is the concept of neutrality, the concept of people standing by and not doing anything, not participating, not helping their own relatives get visas to come to the United States, not sending affidavits. American Jews didn't send their own relatives affidavits because they were afraid they might be a burden and rather let them be burned. 4.2 million people were reported as having been killed, gas, shot uh, by 19... 43, and uh, my whole family was already killed, and my parents were not sent uh, affidavits by their relatives in the United States to come to the United States where they could have been saved. This kind of repetition where people watch other people being killed, even their own relatives, and look at only themselves are a nation of navel gazers, people who concern themselves only with themselves, rather than the pain of other people, is being repeated now. There are other people, and I make no comparison between illness and uh, violence and genocide, but people ignore other people and their illness and take care of only themselves. People grab spaces ahead of other people, like people changing places online in the concentration camps so that they might go to a labor camp or get an extra portion of food. Whole countries like Switzerland are models as to how people shouldn't behave because they were neutral in the face of evil. Even Jews are warned that we should remember, and then the, just to make sure that we get a kick in the pants so that we don't behave the same way, again, we're told, it's the only place where we see that kind of behavior, because people do. That's why that's a warning. Uh, it's nice to teach about these things. We try our best at the school. It's nice to take people to show them how low man can sink by visiting places like this. However, and the March of the Living was a perfect example that was started by uh, the Minister of Finance then of Israel, uh, Abraham Hirschum. And I really want to tell you that, that, you know, many people did many things to help those people. But in this country, I was president of the Claims Conference. My first duty as president of the Claims Conference was to try and get pensions right. to Jews who lived in Eastern Europe.
0: Right.
1: Millions of Jews lived in Eastern Europe, and we American Jews followed the Cold War narrative by not sending our own people pensions and just taking care of the people in the United States and the other diaspora countries. When people in Russia were starving, they they were treated terribly by the Nazis, treated terribly by the Communists, and then treated terribly by the Jews, who decided to be good Americans during the Cold War, as opposed to being good Jews and good citizens, good relatives, and let the people there starve. Uh, So there's a lot of neutrality, and neutrality in the face of evil is participation. And that's the kind of thing that I think particularly religious Jews in yeshivas shouldn't choose only one day to remember them. There should be a certain memory every day for religious Jews. We started saying, Abar after the crusade. We started saying nothing after the Holocaust. It's going to be forgotten. It's only three generations. It's only 70 years and already... We're well along the way of forgetting.
0: Dr. Israel Singer is with us. He is um, professor of Jewish history and much more over at the uh, Toro College. Um, we talk about what's happening today and and your comments about neutrality or uh, what some people might call a, um, a desire to be indifferent uh, is so important. D- do you see... Do you see this in, a, in an even deeper sense because of the effects of the pandemic? Have, have the feelings you've had about the era we're in uh, grown even sharper because of what you've seen over the last year?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I think many, many people uh, see the pandemic as already having passed because they've been vaccinated. Uh, everything look, is looked upon by a personal perspective as opposed to a national perspective or a familial perspective even. I mean, my God, you can't go into shul and say this thing is over and just stand there because you don't like to have your mouth muzzled by a mask. I mean, remember, your grandfather, uh, he might die because of your interest in freedom or your interest in comfort. It's even worse in some cases. People just want to be a little more comfortable. Uh, I really want to tell you there's no comparison between a uh, uh a a a situation like our pandemic, uh but right now the pandemic is the worst thing that ever happened because right. it's happening to people themselves, right. everything about themselves. Judaism was created uh as a religion by berchu to create a better world, a world in which we're supposed to protect every other person, not only ourselves and I think that the self has become so uh, overwhelming and so overriding in the rich society in, we, in which we live uh, that we have forgotten the other. Uh,
0: Doctor Israel Singer is with us. You, you've made some amazing points for this Yom Hashoah. I mean, especially the zahar Al Tishkach. I mean, the uh, juxtaposition of remembering and uh, and and the the um, tendency that we as human beings have uh, in terms of being forgetful. I mean, it's uh, such an important point for today. Um, it, there are those, even though it shouldn't be only one day a year, you know this, that there are those, and, and thank God, by the way, that at least they're brave enough in some cases to actually bring it up, uh, who will be uh, with their students today in school, uh, some in yeshivas that are not really concentrating on the theme of the day, but certain uh, Rebbeim and teachers might take it upon themselves to mention it and to, and to tell the young people you know, maybe how lucky they are to be in the United States or the differences between living today and living back then, Uh, for a kid during the Shoah, what would you say would be an effective way uh, in an informal manner? I'm not talking about the programs and the trips that you described earlier, and kudos to Turo for that. But what would you do if you walked into a classroom today and 10, 11, 12-year-olds or teenagers are sitting there and you wanted to bring this point across to them about why today is so important?
1: I would describe my personal experience. I was a child uh, in my early teens, and my parents decided to take me, which it wasn't easy in those days. Uh, We weren't a wealthy family, but we were an educated family. My parents took me to Israel to the Eichmann trial. And I sat on my—we only had two seats, my father and mother, and I sat in between them in the crack for hours and hours and hours because my father was an educator, not professionally. He was an educated person. Uh, and he wanted his children to be educated. And he, as a Holocaust survivor, not in a death camp by any stretch of the imagination, only in a labor camp. But he, he took me to the Eichmann trial. It transformed my life. It made me involved in things that I could have ignored and could have just tried to change my life. I would force kids to be free. I would force them to be free to understand their own history and to understand what happened to the Jewish people, and to understand their own families in some cases, ignoring such horror uh, and moving on with their lives. Uh, this is a necessity that needs to be done by each teacher, knowing his or her students, uh, and not to be ignored. And it shouldn't be done only one day a year. Right. It should be done. The 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 period right after the Crusades put Avorachlim into the davening. I know why you shouldn't add things to formal davening. I know halachically why. I got smichas and that, but I can tell you <laughs> that we've all failed. Religious Jews, particularly who are committed every day, have failed and failed, continue to fail. It's no good. Lo, sishkach. We should read the parsha informally today. We should read it often, and we should remember always.
0: Do you, uh, do you worry about the future of the Jewish people in the United States of America? Especially, I do. Especially as you recall. I, I worry
1: particularly because of their comfort level. Uh, everybody's concerned with their comfort level. And then they're surprised when they're not comfortable. Uh, I believe that people should be made uncomfortable as often as possible. I believe in comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. And the United States is a perfect place in which to start, because we're the most comfortable. Plenty of
0: opportunity here to do that, that's for sure. That's correct. Dr. Israel Singer, uh, he is a a political science professor at Turo College. Uh, He, of course, uh, is former president of the Claims Conference and a noted Holocaust educator with some important messages today. Information, by the way, about all the formal education in the world of Jewish history and in the... um, the, uh, on the topic of modern Jewish history, on the Holocaust, specifically at Turo, go to Turo.edu, Turo.edu, and as we always recommend, we always recommend to parents and grandparents out there, suggest to your children just how important a real, a real course of study is in any area. You know, not these, uh, well, I'm not going to get into it now, but, but a real course of study with real professors and, and, and real time put into it, etc., like they have at Turo. Uh, when it comes to this area, Jewish history and uh, and and the education uh, about the Holocaust uh, recommended as well, that th- if a student wants to pursue it, they should pursue it in a very serious manner with real educators and in a formal program like they have at uh, Turo. Dr. Israel Singer, I thank you, and I hope that uh, uh, what you've told us this morning will resonate with everybody young and old and that not just today but every day we remember. Uh, we remember and we don't forget on this Yom HaShoah. Thank you. A pleasure. In fact, Israel Singer at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at com, and the nahumschool Network. And, of course, on the beloved NSN app. That was my conversation with Dr. Israel Singer Next up is young author Tzvi Wiesenfeld Who wrote a book about his grandfather's experience In the Holocaust It's a novel form book Here's my conversation with Tzvi Wiesenfeld On JM Rewind at the Malcolm Segal Network JM in the AM Thursday morning Yom HaShoah There's a brand new book out there It's entitled The Man Across the River It's written by Tzvi Wiesenfeld. Tzvi Wiesenfeld studied political science at Yeshiva University and forensic accounting at John Jay College. He works as a financial investigator and business writer in New York City. He wrote this book, The Man Across the River, to honor the memory of his grandfather, Holocaust survivor Jacob Wiesenfeld. Again, the book is called The Man Across the River. Svee Wiesenfeld, thank you for joining us on this Yom Hashoah at JM in the AM.
3: Thank you for having me, Anakim. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Appreciate that. Uh, what might be even more fat, and the story is amazing. I mean, the novel and 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 no secret, it's a combination, as you point out on more than one occasion, it's a combination of, uh, of truth, meaning actual truth, uh, stories that happened to your grandfather, actual episodes that happened to your grandfather intertwined with the novel format that you've incorporated. What what might be even more fascinating than the book itself is that you as a grandson decided that you have to go ahead and do the research and piece all this together and present your grandfather's story in this manner. Could you, before we talk about the actual book, could you take us back to the time where you had this epiphany that you have to go ahead, start the research, and put this all together?
3: Sure, yeah. It was actually it was about 2015 or maybe early 2016. I was actually on the Lower East Side at the time. I was talking to my, my older sister, Hani, and we talked about my grandfather and his experience and what he went through. Um, and, uh, and it occurred to me that we are the last generation most likely to know Holocaust survivors personally. Um, and in a sense, uh, the Holocaust dies with us, with our generation, um, and that really struck me. And then I was just, um, I really just felt compelled to to get my father, my grandfather's, my grandfather's story down while I still could, while people knew him were still alive. Um, it was at that moment that I just that I, I felt the need to write, to write the book and tell the story.
0: And um, <laughs> so, so, you had an opportunity. I, I would assume in a in a number of sessions to actually speak with him directly.
3: Um, actually, no. How, uh, my, my my grandfather passed away in 2007. So how did uh, you? I was, so how did you go was, about?
0: Uh, so how did you go about doing the research then?
3: So the first thing I did was I interviewed everybody who knew him who was still alive. Um, my parents, aunts and uncles, cousins, distant cousins, people who knew him from shul, his doctor, his rabbi, everyone who knew him. Um, My my grandfather himself was was very modest, very quiet, very reserved, and never spoke about his past. He never spoke to me about about the Holocaust. He passed away when I was 18 years old, um, when I was in Israel for the year, Um, and he didn't really speak to anyone much about it. Um, But over the process of interviewing, you know, over a dozen people several times, um, I was able to pick up anecdotes, different stories, things started to come together. I was able to to piece together uh, a narrative. Of 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 what happened to him, um, I also uh, contacted a number of, of institutions. The U.S. Holocaust Museum in Washington D.C. was particularly helpful. They sent me a trove of documentation about him that they uncovered. The Evo Institute in New York as well. Um, I contacted the 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 uh, governments of of Romania and Ukraine, although they weren't very helpful at all. So so um, before
0: so before Tsvi Wiesenfeld is with us. The book is called The Man Across the River. So before 2007, before his passing. Did you have direct conversations with him about his past, or was it something that wasn't discussed?
3: I never spoke to him about the Holocaust.
0: So you never had a conversation with your grandfather regarding his experiences in World War II, yet you were able to write a book based on his experiences. Pretty cool. And I would assume your background, or what now is your background as a forensic investigator, helped a lot, right? I, I assume you're somebody who takes research meticulously and very seriously.
3: Yeah, uh, I think that that's that's pretty accurate. It's definitely helped and definitely helped point me the right direction. That's where to look for documentation, what questions to ask, how to conduct interviews, that kind of thing.
0: And um, it, you had to depend on the fact that uh, you know if he wouldn't say anything or didn't in fact you know speak to you directly about these experiences, you had to d- depend on the fact that there were people in his life that he did speak to. When you interviewed the people that you just mentioned, the list of. And the categories of people that you went to, his doctor, friends, shul people, et cetera. I mean, w- did they tell you that in fact they heard directly from him about his experiences? Or again, were you piecing it together just based on I don't know, what they conjectured or, you know, assumed about him?
3: Well, um, they all said the same thing. Uh they all said your grandfather never spoke about the Holocaust, but he did tell me this one story. Or were, he to tell me these two stories. Ah, I know him. Got it. Um, wow. And you know, there were some people that he told more than others. Um, there were some. There were certain things that family members heard from friends of him, friends of his, or people who knew him in Europe. A lot of it was secondhand, um, and that's how I was able to put it all together. But that's where the get a lot of the guesswork came in, and obviously the dialogue is all is all is all invented.
0: Right. Understood. Unbelievable. How old was your grandfather at the time when the war ended?
3: Uh, well, when he got to America in 1948, he was 20. Well, he was 25 years old so when he, the war ended But three years prior, he was about 22 years old.
0: So he essentially, and, and I'm always fascinated when we hear stories of survivors like this. Although I don't know why this age group would would affect me more than others, but he spent his teenage years as uh, as a prisoner, as a as a uh, a refugee. I mean, you could you could you know toss a lot of different. Uh, um, adjectives into into how he's or nouns I should say into how he spent his teenage years.
3: Yes, uh, that's correct. From about the years of, of the uh, about the ages of eighteen to twenty two was when he was in the Holocaust.
0: Unbelievable. Uh, and it, just uh, where does the story start? Uh, what city? What country was he from? Is it a place you visited or a place that uh, you spent a lot of time researching?
3: I've never visited it, but I have spent a lot of time re- researching it. I've read every book I can find on the topic. It's a city uh, now, what's called Chernivtsi. At the time, the Jewish population called it Chernivtsi, which is which is the, which is the, the Yiddish pronunciation. Um, it was it was a city on the outskirts of R- Romania at the time, sort of this unprotected um, annexation. It was once part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, and th- throughout the years, it, 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 it has gone through a lot of different masters, Russia and Germany. Um, Soviet Union, um, and uh, and it was it had uh, it was a large city, a surviving Jewish community. It had a Jewish quarter, which is where my grandfather, father lived,
0: um, in the, the city of Chernivtsi. Right, you just right, you described that Jewish quarter very similar to a lot of other you know cities that have you know neighborhoods or areas that are heavily Jewish. I was going to ask you yeah. if if you would describe the city as a heavily Jewish one, but again, I think you just basically said it right. It's essentially a, a city that had a large Jewish presence in a specific area.
3: Oh, for sure. And especially as the war broke out and a number of Jewish r- refugees streamed in from the countryside, um, slinged advancing Germans, the Jewish population swelled, swelled about 50 percent of the entire city population. Right.
0: You know what's funny about your book, uh, Tzvi Wiesenfeld's with us, The Man Across the River, uh, a book he wrote about his grandfather, a novel form, but he wrote it about his grandfather and his uh, uh, experiences during World War II. Uh, after all the extensive research he'd done, we're highly recommending the book to everybody, especially on this Yomash Shoah. You know, what's interesting about the book, especially for someone like me, who's a very, very nonfiction person and uh, and rarely ever picks up a, a fictitious book, you have a, a really strange balance that you have to maintain. Um, uh, you know, at the end of the book, for instance, when you're talking about his experiences, meaning your grandfather or the person that, uh, you know, the character in the in the story, you know, has is in Manhattan, Lower East Side, uh, uh, passes away in Brooklyn, etc. I mean, I, I I am working on the assumption that most of those basic facts are, in fact, you know, truths about your grandfather. How does one balance the fictitious of a novel, the fiction rather of a novel, and the nonfiction of his experiences when putting together a book like this?
3: Uh, that's a good question, Nakam, And I guess I guess the best answer is that you know, I knew my grandfather, I knew him well. And, um, and knowing his personality, knowing that he was just a gentle, kind, very modest person, I tried to, to, to put myself in his shoes and imagine how he would have acted, how he would have spoken, um, what his attitudes would have been in, in, in these situations that I knew to be factual and, uh, built, built a character around that.
0: Very interesting. Um, Most inspirational story with—I mean—and there's a lot of material here, as you know. Uh, A most inspirational story to you, if you were asked to tell one tale from the man across the river or one aspect of your grandfather's life, especially back then before he got to the U.S. What would you say?
3: Um, When my grandfather was in the ghetto in Riga, the first ghetto was in in the. Transnistria, and he he considered himself a, uh, a strong person. Um, and he thought he was going to die soon, um, and that his friends and his brother would 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 outlive him. Um, and um, a friend of his who was in the book asked him. He said, "If I die first, can you please give me Jewish burial? Because you know the Jewish cemetery they weren't taking any more, any more, in more bodies." Right. Um, and he said, "I don't think I'll look to, I'll look to, to, to do so, but I um I, I do commit to to to, to, to give the proper Sahara. Um, his friend ultimately died, collapsed from from starvation. And my my grandfather, um, he took it upon himself to to he kept his word and buried his friend, gave him a, gave him a proper Jewish burial, and he committed for the rest of the war to give uh, victims of the Holocaust a proper Jewish burial whenever he could.
0: That's the first thing he was. What does someone like you, and um, uh, you know, and and you know, people in your age group, think of heroism like that? I, I could see people. You know, wondering why that would be such a priority, uh why that would be so important to a man like your grandfather. Uh, what do you think when you when you hear about and then eventually write about an episode like that and dedication to our tradition and heritage?
3: Uh it's you know, it's it's very humbling. It's difficult to imagine that kind of bravery, that kind of heroism. Um, our lives today in America are pretty easy. Um mm. and not to have to encounter that kind of that kind of
0: situation. Um it's,
3: it's it's it's
0: it's kind of hard to hard to alleviate the end. um one of the things we think about or or often discuss uh especially when it comes to next generation uh are guilt feelings that one experiences because of what their parent or grandparent had gone through and you, know, you have this burden like you just described the comfort of lu- and luxury of you know of living here you know where 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 the greatest challenges of life are are a joke compared to their greatest challenges um when you when you researched this and became much more familiar with your grandfather's life, was that something that uh that that grew that type of feeling or actually because you were working on it and felt that you were helping to memorialize him, it actually lessened that type of feeling?
3: Uh, I, I I would say it grew. Um, but balanced by the knowledge that um that my grandfather worked so hard uh, when he came to America because he wanted to he wanted to have a good life and he wanted everybody to, to be to be safe and healthy, and taken care of, and um, that, was, that was his goal, and that was his primary concern: was taking care of his family, working hard, and his in his community. Um, so I try to keep to keep that in mind and use that to balance, you know, the the guilt the you say of, of not having had, not having to have experience what, what, what he went through and so many others went through.
0: And when you write about the experiences in the ghetto. Um, again, I, I, you know, not, not not to not to make this all about your research and how you did it, but I mean, were there accounts about that specific ghetto that uh, that you were able to utilize and, and include, or was it more conjecture, or just based on general ghetto experiences of Jews in Europe? How would you describe uh, what we see on the pages about his experiences in the ghetto?
3: So all those instances. Um, all the stories and things that my grandfather saw, or at least he saw on the pages of the book, um, actually happened and came from history. I didn't make up any specific instance out of whole cloth. Um, uh, when, when when I tried to paint a picture or illustrate what the various ghettos and, and camps that he were in were, were, were like, I, I pulled them from the pages of history. So that is all true in that sense.
0: Pretty amazing. Um Svi Wiesenfeld the book is called the man across the river you know we're recommending the book uh, um especially on this Yom Shoah, but I want I want to make a point that I, I I essentially would think you'd agree with this but I I don't think this is the case with a lot of books regarding the holocaust I think this is really appropriate for the younger people in the audience meaning not just for the younger the older as well but often we're hesitant to give a younger uh, a person a kid in our community a, a book that might be frightening a book that you know would include things that are difficult to to handle, but it, th- I think the way you've done this, I think this is really a good read for a teenager. Do you agree that this could really enhance a teenager's understanding of what Jews back then went through?
3: Thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, I think I think it is it is uh, um, a pretty easy read in, in in the sense that like the uh, the the jargon of the narrative isn't dense or anything. of the story It's also right. it's, it's a fairly short read as well. Right. Um, so I, I didn't originally intend to write it for kids or for for uh, for a younger audience. But I do find that a lot of a lot of kids and teenagers are reading it and, and enjoying getting getting a lot from it.
0: So really nice. I think it is true. In general, I hope you're getting good reaction. I am. Very nice. Tzvi Wiesenfeld, the man across the river. Easiest way for people to obtain this book, Tzvi?
3: Um, get it on Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com.
0: Kolakavod. Uh, I, I I am sure <laughs> I am sure there are a lot of grandchildren in this audience who thought about writing a book based on what they heard directly or indirectly about their grandparents' experiences, 99% of them, I would assume, never got around to it. It must be a very satisfying feeling that you able that you actually accomplished this. It certainly is. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Nakham. Svi Wiesenfeld, the book is called The Man Across the River. Highly recommending it, and get it for your kids. Uh, this is not one of those, you know, frightening books about World War II. I, even the tough parts are, you know, are, are really easy to digest. Let's put it that way. Or easier, I should say. Nothing about World War II is easy to digest. Uh, but easier than a lot of other works. And, of course, you know, the part after getting to the United States is a uh, one of great inspiration. I mean, it's all inspiration, but you get my point. Anyway, it's called The Man Across the River. S.V. Wiesenfeld spells his name Z-V-I-W-I-E-S-E-N-F-E-L-D. And if you go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, as he recommended, uh, the book is readily available. And if you have, not that this is an Amazon commercial, but those of you who are Prime members can actually have the book for Shabbos. How do you like that? It is Yom HaShoah morning, day 11 in the counting of the Omer. If you forgot to count last night, make sure to do so sometime today. It's a Yom HaShoah Holocaust Memorial Day morning at JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Zvi Wiesenfeld about his brand new book. Dr. Chana weinstock newberger is next. She joined us from JOMA and from the FDA to discuss the efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Chana weinstock newberger my guest on JM Rewind here at the Malcolm Siegel Network. Our friends at JOMA present COVID-19 Vaccines and You, a live stream town hall for women happening this coming Sunday, beginning 8 p.m. It'll feature Dr. Richard Grazi, Dr. Naur Barzev, and Dr. Ellie Carmody Stone. Go to Joma.org for information, J-O-W-M-A.org for information. Joma is the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. And if you go to their website, Joma.org, and you click on Patient EDU, Patient EDU at the top, there's a lot of information about the value of the COVID-19 vaccine. and um, and getting it uh, spread in an appropriate manner throughout our community. And I hope you would go there if, if there's anybody that you know that has questions about the vaccine to learn more and more about it from the information that Joma provides. And we are going to encourage people, continue to encourage people in our community to get the vaccine and spread immunity throughout the community so all of us can get back to what we knew as a normal existence before this pandemic began. We have a special guest with us live via telephone, and it's unlike me to go through a long introduction, but in this case, I think it's appropriate so we know just who we're speaking to on the other end. Uh, it's a pretty serious conversation and one that I hope will, again, encourage people to visit Joma.org and to get more information if they have any doubts, if you have any doubts regarding the COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Hannah Weinstock-Neuberger is with us, a medical oncologist and hematologist who has been a genitourinary uh, oncology team leader at the United States Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, since 2017, where she leads a team of oncologists in the review and approval of cancer drugs. She is a BJJ graduate who then graduated with high distinction from the University of Toronto before completing her medical degree at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. She completed her internal medicine residency at Beth Israel, her medical oncology and hematology fellowship at the University of Maryland, then practiced thoracic and genitourinary oncology at the University of Maryland Medical Center and at the Baltimore Veterans Affairs Medical Center, and she remains on staff at the Baltimore VA. Her original oncology oncology research has been published in peer-reviewed journals like the Journal of Clinical Oncology, Journal of Urology, Clinical Cancer Research, presented at many national meetings from many different organizations and symposia and workshops, serves the current track leader of the ASCO's GU Oncology, Kidney, and Bladder Cancer Education Committee on the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network Annual Meeting Planning Committee and as an FDA observer on the National Cancer Institute NCTN Scientific Steering Committee in the Genitourinary Oncology and has presented for the FDA's Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee. She's recently been involved in organizing several workshops on clinical trial design an endpoint definition in genitourinary oncology. She's also a founding vice president of the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association, JOMA. This is the type of people that JOMA has. This is the type of credentials they bring to the table, and she's active in mentorship for those aspiring to careers in medicine. Dr. Hannah Weinstock Newberger, a pleasure and an honor to welcome you to JM in the AM.
4: Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here this morning. Thanks so much for having me.
0: I appreciate that. We hear so much, all of us, uh, you know, regular people hear so much about the FDA. Can you tell me a little bit about what the FDA is and what it does and what you do there at the FDA?
4: Sure, I'm, I'm happy to. So I'm a medical oncologist and hematologist by training, But I do happen to work at the FDA, um, which is, I think, why I was asked to talk a little bit about the agency that I work for. So um, as you mentioned, I work as a team leader in the Office of Oncologic Diseases, and I lead a team of medical oncologists where we review clinical trials in prostate, kidney, and bladder cancer, and we approve new drugs for all of those indications. So the truth is that I really have very little to do with the vaccine approval process. It's done in a different center, but what I can tell you is some of my familiarity with the agency and um, with, you know, the drug approval process and with the type of people that do the work that I do. Um, And I know, you know, there's a very rigorous hiring and vetting process that happens before someone
0: comes on board to work here. (laughs) I can only imagine. My gosh. (laughs) I mean, our lives are in your hands, essentially. Um, and, and and the FDA mission, in general, because we hear so much about it and we we, we pray that it is that it is as uh, as neutral and as active as we read about, uh, tell us about their mission and what you do to ensure and protect public health.
4: Yeah, sure. So you know, it's something that many of us um, who come to work for the FDA take very seriously, and it's the reason why many of us have chosen a career. Um, in, you know, a public agency and public service. We do take this charge to protect the public health very seriously, and it's something we really feel as sort of a calling. So, I mean, in terms of the FDA's mission, we protect public health by ensuring safety, efficacy, and security of drugs, devices, and biologic products. And um, as an agency, we're responsible for advancing public health by speeding innovation, making you know drugs and medical products more effective, safer, and really by helping the public get accurate and science-based information to use drugs and all sorts of medical products in the proper way to improve their health. So it's really a charge we take very seriously every day.
0: Dr. Hannah Weinstock-Newberger with us. Amazing that so many of us hear about the FDA and we don't think about the people who are behind it. And someone this prominent is in our is in our own community, which is pretty cool. Uh, doctor, can you describe the process everyone's talking about this vaccine that, that's obvious. I don't have to tell you the entire country is focused on it every single day. Can you tell us about the process that a drug or vaccine goes through before it is approved for marketing in the United States? And this is an important question, as you know, because people are skeptical and wonder about the speed with which this vaccine, meaning the vaccine, for COVID-19 specifically came out, etc. Can you describe the rigorous process for us?
4: Yes, yeah, sure. So, you know, anytime that a drug company wants to manufacture and sell a drug in the United States, the FDA is authorized by law to evaluate these new drugs before they can be sold. And this really prevents unsafe and ineffective drugs from being marketed, right? Um, but it also provides doctors and patients with information that they need to use medicines wisely. Um, And the way this is done is that all drug companies, before they can sell drugs in the United States, need to test these drugs and send the information from these tests to the FDA to review and really look at the data in order to decide that a drug is safe. And that's when um, my team comes in, which is a team of physicians, statisticians, chemists, you name it, and we review the data, we review the labeling. And what this does is establish a really independent and unbiased review to state that, you know, the drug's health benefits outweigh its risks. And that's when a drug can be approved for sale and marketing in the US. So it's really um, a layer of oversight a really important layer of oversight to know that when someone's selling a drug it's safe and it does what it says it's going to do.
0: Yeah and it doesn't do what what many people claim it might do and I'm, when I say that I'm talking about you know unusual yeah. unusual side effects etc. Uh, Dr. Hannah Weinstock-Newberger is with us. Um, so literally our lives are in your hands. Um, it, we've heard the term emergency use, uh, use authorization a lot. President Trump used it a lot. President Biden has used it. We've heard the term a lot. And I think psychologically to the regular average person, it sounds like when you hear those words that things are being rushed. And I think it's unfair to portray it that way. Could you tell us the accurate description of what an emergency use authorization is?
4: So first of all, um, I think what you're saying is um, certainly reflecting what people, um, you know, may be saying or, or um discussing um, when they hear the term. But to really get an accurate sense of what an emergency use authorization is, I really do urge people to go to the FDA.gov website. Mm. There's a lot of information about the regulatory um, processes behind emergency use authorization, et cetera. But really what an emergency use authorization allows is when there's a really um, grave public health emergency there's a mechanism by which we can facilitate availability as soon as possible of something like a COVID vaccine, which can be done in a way that the public can trust and have confidence in receiving. So, the emergency use authorization is really just a mechanism to facilitate availability and use of vaccines, etc., during public health emergencies, and. Um, Under an EUA, the FDA still does very rigorous review of clinical trials, phase three clinical trials. Um, But this is just a way that this can happen in a somewhat more expedient manner. And, you know, if a company feels like there's a situation that justifies it, after discussion with the FDA, they can really start going down this pathway for approval. And... Um, once submitted, uh, this data really is reviewed in a very rigorous way, and the data is reviewed by an independent committee of experts, and the career physicians and scientists who work at the FDA then have to evaluate all the, the clinical trial data, et cetera, that's submitted, right. and look at the risks and benefit, like we do for any other drug. Um, And that's when the um, decision to approve is made. But I I do want to say that the vaccines are really rigorously tested. You know, these um, are the COVID-19 vaccine trials uh, are evaluated in thousands of study participants. And, you know, this really is how the data is generated in order to um, really provide the uh, backing for the approval,
0: and and I, I want to add, and and I'm I'm just making clear to the audience that because of your position at the FDA, the boundaries of this conversation have been very very clearly set. So if I ask something that you don't want to answer, saying to us that you won't answer it is totally legitimate, <laughs> but uh, and I mean that and uh, and 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 no worries at all. But I think it's so important. There are thousands of people listening right now, and I think it's important. To convey to everybody who's listening that even though this was an EUA, even though this was an emergency use authorization, so much of the research, so many of these steps in retrospect, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So you can either again tell me I'm right or you don't want to discuss it. But so much of what went into this COVID-19 vaccine was done for years, some might even say for decades, before this pandemic even even you know, hit us on this globe. Would that be an accurate way of portraying it?
4: Well, you know, certainly any advance in medicine comes on the um, shoulders of a lot of um, many, many hard work, many, many years of hard work um, and just basic science and drug development, vaccine development. So again, while I'm not a vaccine reviewer and I can't comment on the specifics, um, you know, in the scientific process behind the drug development, Um, I I do think that there was a lot of um, prior um, development in this area and again the clinical trials were phase three clinical trials that really did evaluate tens of thousands of patients so there really is a lot of rigor behind this.
0: Yeah and you mentioned a moment ago just how rigorously tested these COVID-19 vaccines are and you you did say you use the word thousands in terms of the number of people that are included in these tests and trials etc. Would it be appropriate for me, to, and again, this is just to encourage people in this audience to get vaccinated. I've mentioned a million times that, that I've already been quote-unquote double vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine. Would it be appropriate to discuss... Great. I'm sorry? Great. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I've <laughs> been
4: vaccinated. My husband's been vaccinated. We're all... Uh, there you, you go. Know, as soon as we can, I think that's that's been the limiting factor is trying to get an appointment, Um but... I would encourage everybody to try to go ahead and do so.
0: And finally, again, you know, a lot of people are skeptical about a lot of things. Um, How can you explain if there is any relationship between an FDA employee and, for example, a pharmaceutical company? You know, people are are curious, skeptical, use whatever word you want, uh, about what effect um, uh, the FDA or pressure the FDA might be under when it comes to the pressure that pharmaceutical companies might be able to place on them? What can you tell us about this relationship between the FDA and pharmaceutical companies?
4: Yeah, thank you. That's a great question, and I'm really happy to talk about this because it comes up a lot. So, uh, you know, this because this applies to me and my colleagues um, who approve cancer drugs just as much as it applies to any FDA employee. So we all have extremely rigorous ethical standards that forbid us from profiting at all from anything that's regulated by the FDA. So not even what we personally are involved with. But as an FDA employee, I can't profit from anything, um, any food, drugs, tobacco, et cetera, that's regulated by the FDA. I need to report all of my external investments. Um, I can't own any shares in a drug company. Uh, All of these are scrutinized and reviewed to make sure there are no waste for me to profit from any of the work that I do or that anyone does at the FDA. And this is true for all employees. We can face jail time. We can face fines if we violate these ethical guidelines. And, you know, these are very clearly stated. We, we go through training often. So this is, you know, something that is very um, important and, and just very known and emphasized within the agency. So I can assure you that the oversight into the independence and accountability of all FDA employees is absolutely there and and really protected. So we're working for public health and safety without any ability of profit personally, and we're working totally independently. And for many of us, like I said, it's really a calling and really something we feel is a way to help many, many people. You know, um, in a very impactful way the
0: uh, the build. way the way i would put it is that there's a lot of gray area when it comes to the way pharmaceutical companies deal with a lot of different things in this country but it seems when it comes to the fda pharmaceutical companies relationship it ain't it ain't no gray area <laughs> the, rule, oh, no. the rules the rules are it's very it's clear black and white <laughs> right, you know exactly. and, and
4: there's absolutely no profit on our part so i i definitely if there's one thing that anyone takes away from this interview it's that you know the complete Independence and the absence of any kind of profit um, on our part, um, or any kind of um, payback, or, or, or any of those things that I've I've heard people ask about. I mean, there there is there are real consequences if anyone were ever to contemplate anything like that. It's just um, you know really really not um, not allowable um, ethically
0: information about all of this directed specifically to our community go to joma.org j-o-w-m-a.org at the top there's a tab that says patient edu it's a great place to start in terms of uh, finding out more and more about the COVID 19 vaccine and how it relates to our community and a lot of the different you know stories rumors and and uh, skepticism that goes on in our community in all seriousness I mean outside of your role with the FDA for a moment, I mean, it, we were introduced to Jomo a few weeks ago. I think you know that, and we've been using them as a tremendous uh, resource and vehicle to get the word out uh, to all of our listeners. Uh, I mean, they have attracted um a, a lot of um, a lot of very, very qualified medical personnel. I mean, your your resume is impressive, to say the least, and you're a founding vice president of the Jewish Orthodox women's medical association Uh, what is it about the organization i know i'm asking you this you know off the cuff this is not something that we asked you to prepare but what is it about joma that attracts people with the qualifications that are similar to yours
4: Well, thank you that's very kind um i think it really is an organization that has tapped into an unmet need on a lot of levels. Um, there's a lot of us who've come through the, the medical training system who didn't necessarily have the resources um, in terms of uh, peer support, mentorship, and all of that. So I think that was the original principle on which joma was founded that really attracted a lot of us. Certainly um, excited me um, from Joma's inception. Um, In addition to giving back to the community, I think that's a really important part as well. But, you know, coming as a BCACO graduate and wanting to pursue a medical career, there was uh, very little um, for me that I had available um, to sort of give me career advice and kind of get me through the training. Um, I did have excellent mentorship. I was very, very fortunate to have um, a woman by the name of Dr. Ellen Warner who's a medical oncologist in Toronto where I grew up, who really um, did all of that for me, not through an organization, but the fact that there's a, an organized way to do this now, I think really resonated with a lot of us.
0: Unbelievable. Really nice. Well, I'll ask you to uh, thank those who, uh, because, you deal, because you deal with them, uh, to thank those who are on the front lines of this vaccine research, because frankly, if not for this vaccine, it would take a lot, lot longer. To get people back to, to the normal times that we remember and the fact that a year later because you remember what it was like in april of 2020 especially in our community it was a it was a down and disastrous and tragic uh, month of april a uh, one year ago oh, yeah. and one year later never, yeah i'm sorry
4: i'll, have, I'll never forget the uh, ted that came out the week after pesach it was just yeah, it was horrible a lot of, um, a lot so, of
0: obituaries a lot of obituaries yeah. and remembrances uh, and, and look at us a year later we may not be where we want uh, as, as most of my listeners know I'm dying to get to Israel already and start traveling again <laughs> But so we may not be exactly where we want but the difference between last Yodtif Pesach 5780 and the Pesach 5781 a vast difference and one of the reasons is you and your colleagues so I'll say thank you very much
4: well, thank you very much, and thank you so much. It's really been an honor um, to be part of your program. And, again, FDA.gov is a website that hopefully can answer a lot of questions.
0: Appreciate that, and really an honor to uh, meet you in this forum. Uh, Dr. Hannah Weinstock-Newberger, uh, FDA.gov uh, is the, uh, the website you just recommended. We're also going to recommend, of course, JOMA.org. JOMA is the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. JOMA.org, if you go to patientedu. If you go to patient edu at the top of the page, a whole bunch of resources there. Also, remember that there's a special Joma Town Hall with Dr. Grazi, Dr. Naor Barzev, and Dr. Ellie Carmody Stone coming up this Sunday, April the 11th, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And that town hall is a live stream town hall for women, COVID 19 vaccines, and you. Information on the website, joma.org slash COVID 19, joma.org slash COVID-19 more coming up it is a what is today Tuesday morning edition of JM in the AM that was my conversation with Dr. Hannah Weinstock Newberger. next up Rabbi Ari Pearl from Live On New York we spoke about kidney donations and we spoke about organ donations in general Rabbi Ari Pearl my next guest on JM Rewind here at the Nachum Siegel Network Uh, Rabbi Ari Pearl, who um, I know for longer than uh, both he and I would ever admit, uh, is with us live via telephone. Uh, Rabbi Pearl is the uh, Vice President of Multicultural Engagement at Live On NY, Live On New York. He leads a new initiative to educate the New York City area's diverse Jewish community about the life-saving power of organ donation. And we said earlier that uh, he was with Hode. He works with Hode in cooperation with them, the Halachic Organ Donors Society, but he is uh, not with them. He is with liveonny.org, and their entire Jewish community initiative is led by Rabbi Ari Pearl. Rabbi Pearl, a pleasure to welcome you to JM in the AM.
2: Thank you so much, Nacho, and uh, thanks for having me on, and I am going to make an admission. Um, this is about the. This is exactly the 30-year anniversary, of our first interview, and that was when you you interviewed me to join your staff at Camp Missoura.
0: <laughs> That's it. It was only 30 years ago. My gosh, it seems like yesterday. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, it's a, a pleasure to know you for that length of time and to follow up and just see how successful you've been in so many uh, amazing areas, including. Uh, Jewish education. Uh, Rabbi Ari Pearl is with us. So I wasn't even aware, frankly. I I know there's an effort, and we'll talk about it obviously, to get members of the Jewish community in general, you know, New York area and outside the New York area, to be more aware of the importance of organ donation. I get that. Uh, I was not aware that there's a general effort like this. I didn't know that Live On NY, Live On New York, even exists and that people in general try to lead efforts to, to get people to the point that they're ready uh, to uh, undertake a commitment to organ donation. How would you describe first, before we do the Jewish piece, how would you describe the effort in general uh, in the United States to get people to be aware of its importance?
2: That's really a great place to start. Um, people are generally not aware of the tremendous need. So I'll, let me frame it this way. There's about 110,000 people in the United States who are on what we know of as the waiting list for an organ donation, which means that their doctors have essentially concluded that the only way to save their life is by receiving an organ transplant. And an organ transplant means there has to be a donor on the other side. So that's 110,000 people across the country and in the in the greater new york area it's about 10,000 people and and then coming down to the jewish community statistically there's about a thousand members of our own jewish community in just the new york area whose lives are essentially hanging in the balance depending and and waiting for an organ donation do you
0: and, do you know the uh, do you know the percentage of kidney i'm not trying to put you on this spot i'm just curious because i would assume a lot of it is is need for kidneys? Am I right? Do you know what the percentage you, is of that hundred and ten thousand?
2: You're absolutely correct. the The percentage is overwhelmingly um, the the need is for for kidneys, and then smaller percentages for uh, for heart, for lungs, um, and 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 other. And liver is also very significant need. But you're hundred percent right. That I don't know the exact statistics offhand but a, a large percentage is people waiting for kidney
0: and is, and is kidney the, i mean not to be too frank here but i mean let's let's talk i mean is kidney the only organ that one can give and safely continue to live? Like, could someone do that with a piece of their liver? I mean it, it would be obvious to me, I think, and I'm not a doctor, but it would be obvious to me that you know one would not donate an eye, and that would only happen if if God forbid someone was uh, in an accident and you know had left a a wish for their organs to be donated. But are, are kidneys the only one where we appeal to peel? where we appeal to healthy people who are alive and plan on living a long time for a donation?
2: Right, great question. It's important to distinct to distinguish between two types of donation. There's live donation, where, as you mentioned, the donor is live, and and that's predominantly kidney donation. Although one can um, donate a, a portion of one's liver and still live a right. a very healthy and active life. Um, it's deceased donation, where the possibilities um, expand significantly. And, and those, are and, and those where are, and those are, and those a are a single long. donor can donate and, and save sometimes right. eight lives.
0: And, and, the, and those are lung, heart, et cetera, et cetera, right? Correct. Okay. Yes. Rabbi Ari Pearl is with us. So now why does, and, and you're obviously doing the Jewish piece for liveonny, you know dot org, which is great. And I understand the importance of spreading the word in specific communities. Do we know why? It, it, it would seem to me it would be difficult because of our tradition and heritage and some of the things that we are used to growing up it would seem to me it would be difficult to convince members of our community both about organ donation after death right because again we've been you know we've been primed to to react a certain way to once you know once a, a body is at rest uh so that needs a re-education and i would also think that in our community it, it would It would be difficult to convince people who are alive to do the same thing, to take one of their organs, a kidney that who knows, they may need down the road or or they're afraid to, you know, part with. Uh, You know, it would take a – yet it seems to me, Rabbi Pearl, that when it comes to the first part, it it has been difficult and needs a re-education. When it comes to the second part, the one you described as living donation – it seems like we're on a roll. It seems like members of our community are stepping forward and they want to participate in this unique mitzvah of saving someone's life and living to tell about it.
2: Nachim, you're absolutely correct. Um, the, the Jewish community, and in particular the Orthodox community over the last few years, have become far and away the leaders, community speaking, in in live donation, um, thanks in, in large part to the, the remarkable efforts of organizations like like Renewal, um, and I, it sometimes seems to me like in, in a few years from now, if someone doesn't have on their shidduch resume that a family member gave a, a kidney, <laughs> you know, you need not you need not even apply. That's great. Uh, it, it's remarkable. It's really <laughs> remarkable. But at the same time, um, Jews and most especially in the Orthodox community, very very hesitant about donating after death. And, right. and you're right, a lot of it has to do with some values, tr- very important fundamental values in our in our tradition about kabod Hamate and right. burial and things like that. Right.
0: And we're, but, and we're not in any way minimizing that. It's just that we're living in a completely different time than when all those decisions were made and it needs to be reexamined halakhically and that's and that's why, you know, there are segments of the community that have been active in in making sure that certain people you know who want to make a commitment to organ donations, you described earlier, one can save up to eight lives depending on the organ you know if if unfortunately a family member you know has perished in uh, in some type of accident. So uh, you know right. it, it just now. So if Hodes, because we we're familiar somewhat with the Halachic or- Organ Donor Society, we we've always and and I know that you have an initiative with them with which we'll get to. Uh, if they're responsible for education and renewal again because of their social media and their you know incredible presence in the community at this point, you know we know that they are really the nuts and bolts of getting these donations and these transplants done. Uh, th- what is live on and why where where do they fall? Are, are they actively helping people match up with the uh, recipients? are they only you know an educational arm to spread the word in different communities? what's the role? So,
2: Live On New York is actually a government-mandated organization that oversees all aspects of deceased organ donation in the Greater New York area. Uh, the country is divided up into 58 different regions. Each region has an organization that's responsible for the entire process. So, so it's a large nonprofit organization. One of the things that we do is community education, and then we break down those community education initiatives into different communities geographically regionally religiously culturally but we also have medical staff uh medical officers surgeons we we actually oversee and and implement all the aspects of uh deceased organ donation and strictly deceased organ donation so it's uh it's a full operation if you will
0: unbelievable um you've been at this for a couple of years right do you see, and again, I'm looking at the perspective that we've been talking about this for about 30 years, uh, so I know the changing attitude in our community. Have you seen a lot of change over the last couple of years, and now the changes are going very slowly?
2: Yeah, I would say we've, we've definitely seen change, and, and we can say that statistically because we, we have a record of every opportunity that a Jewish family has to donate, and the numbers are still not good but there's definitely been an improvement but it's slow and it's steady and as you said there's a lot of work that needs to be done to educate the community and and the bar moves slowly bit by bit but but it's definitely going in the right direction and uh, we've we've had a number of successful initiatives uh we have a major program coming up for donate life month which is the month of April for the Westchester Jewish community we oh, have about 12 to 15 synagogue and day school co-sponsors for an event to educate the westchester jewish community and we're trying to do similar things in other communities whether it's large scale or individual shuls day schools jccs and things like that to try to try to educate the community because that's what it comes down to is education
0: i read somewhere online i just can't find it right now you you actually have an initiative that's going to be happening later this year in 2021 i just don't remember was something I saw, an event that I saw that was coming up um, uh, later on. But anyway, uh, you'll certainly keep us up to date on all of this, and we'll make sure to let people know about it. Rabbi Ari Pearl is with us talking about uh, liveonny.org. Uh, all right, a couple of things. I mean, you mentioned about, the, about April being na- uh, Donate Life Month, National Donate Life Month. That's why this is a good time to bring this to everybody's attention um also there's a tell us about this partnership uh, it's one of the, the the points that you sent in your initial email to us apparently live on ny and hodes have worked together to form a partnership with an organ donation club at yeshiva university is that is that a club that did not exist until recently
2: that it that club did not exist until until very recently and the uh the partnership initiative um you know hodes is a a global organization that for many, many years has been doing the pioneering work of educating the community about organ donation. And we partnered with them to create a college campus ambassador program where we have some wonderfully um, talented and ambitious uh, students on a few different college campuses in the New York area who are well-educated about the issue, passionate about the issue, and are bringing this type of education to their fellow students and other um, other members of the, the broader college communities that they're a part of, and, and including at Yeshiva University.
0: Interesting. And you get them started young, they'll uh, the, we're, we're literally going to grow a generation of students that are, you know, looking positively uh, on this mitzvah instead of, you know, all the apprehension and hesitation that, you know, we've had in our community. And again, not criticizing. We, we know where that comes Correct. from. It comes from a good place, so we know where it comes from. Uh, but, but but there's no question a lot of that is changing. By the way, the event I was talking about, and I'm glad I found it, is coming up in November. I know it's half a year from now, but it's significant in my opinion because you are going to be dedicating an entire Shabbos across the board at the beginning of November uh, in different congregations throughout the New York area uh, to educate people about this. You're literally uh, doing what – I don't know if it's been done before, frankly. It, it's, it's sort of an organ donation Shabbaton uh, to bring awareness to people throughout the community.
2: Right, and and you know, interestingly, I was a, a shul rabbi for for 20 years, wonderful 20 years, and and I was never really aware that right. this initiative existed right. across the board for faith communities every November. Right, that's how that's how out of the loop the Jewish community generally is right. when it comes to this topic. And part of my job is to bring some of these initiatives that exist and make the Jewish Jewish community part of them, so that so that, like you said, we can, we can benefit from the mitzvah of, of giving, but also there are benefits to our own community. There are lives within our own community that can be saved through these initiatives.
0: No question about it. All right. Uh, the website is liveonny.org slash Judaism. Again, if you want the specific targeted web page that speaks to our community, it's org slash Judaism. Be aware of the fact that April is National Donate Life Month. Uh, which brings even more awareness, uh, hopefully in our community as well as other communities, to the power of organ donation. Um, and uh, as Rabbi Ari Pearl described, and there's nothing better than this, uh, any organization you've heard of that's dealing with organ donations, recipients, the procedure, the education, he's working with all of them uh, to try to spread the word and get the education out there. That, that would be accurate, Rabbi Pearl. You're, you're you're more than willing to work with any group that wants to help you get this word out. Oh, Absolutely. Uh so again, anybody with information or questions go to liveonny.org slash Judaism. Anything else you'd like to add, Rabbi Ari Burl? Um, no, the only
2: thing I would say is uh education about the issue is important. It's also a community mindset that needs to shift. And I'll give you an example. You sure. know, thirty years ago, if you saw someone in the in the Orthodox community walking around with a phone or walkie-talkie on Shabbos, right, it, it would be a it would be a shonda in, right. in some way. You know, now it's like commonplace. You know, right. what kind of a from are you are you, if you don't carry a walkie-talkie <laughs> on Shabbos? And part of that, the reason I, I mentioned this is because it's a maturation of the community attitude. We now understand that as important as Shabbos is, to af nefesh and saving life is even more important, right? right? So we, we, we've come to understand that. And I think that's really a key when it comes to organ donation, is the issues of kavod Hamate, nivul hameit, Burial, all incredibly important issues that are, at, you know, at the bedrock of, of our value system. But what we have to realize is that, is that pikuach nefesh and saving life is always, you know, with the three common exceptions, but always the supreme value. And that's right. where the conversation should really start is how do we save lives and, and what might the obstacles be and how do we overcome them instead of Seeing organ donation as something that's just not part of the Jewish community or the Jewish value system or the
0: halachic values, and and I think it's safe to say that Jewish religious leaders of all backgrounds—I mean, right to left, left to right—I think are are. I'm not saying they're completely, you know, 180 already on this issue, but they're certainly, you know, making a, a lot of moves on this issue.
2: Absolutely, and and I think what I would leave you with is is um, members of the Jewish community don't make assumptions about the issues surrounding organ donation. Talk to your rabbis right. about it. There's 400 rabbis who are signed up um, with their own halachic organ donation cards, which means that they support it. Right. Uh, doctors, in our, doctors in our community should engage rabbis in these types of conversations and, and are very helpful to rabbis in understanding the, the cutting-edge medical issues that are such a big part of this of this issue and I would say to my fellow rabbis you know to make sure that that you understand all of the scientific and medical issues you know and then whatever the halakhic conclusion right. is is a halakhic conclusion as long as it's an educated
0: one. Right. excellent uh, rabbi Ari Pearls vice president of multicultural engagement the uh, initiative at live on NY educates New York City's Jewish community about the life-saving power of organ donation information liveonnyorg slash Judaism liveonny.org slash Judaism. Rabbi Pearl, a real pleasure. Continued success with your work. You're doing very, very important work out there and it's much appreciated. Thank you, Nachum. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Rabbi Ari Pearl, a a Tuesday morning broadcast at JM in the AM. (laughs) That was my conversation with Rabbi Ari Pearl of Live On. NY. Thanks so much for tuning in. Make sure to be tuned in all week long to our great programming on NSN, including next week's edition of JM Rewind, and tune into JM in the AM every single weekday morning right here on the Naum Siegel Network.